We'll be in James 5, verse 12 this morning. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, James 5, verse 12. So what is truth? What is truth? That's a popular question these days. You, you, you hear about it, you read about it, you, you get some very different answers depending on who you're asking. Well, what is truth? This is a question that Pilate asked Jesus, if you remember that. Well, he asked Jesus when he was questioning him. And it was Pilate's glib response to what Jesus had told him, asking what is truth. Now, Jesus had told Pilate that he had come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And all he could say is, what is truth? And that everyone who is of the truth, Christ says, listens to his voice. Now, Pilate dismissed Jesus' claim to truth in a siege of irony. When you consider um, that vain question that he asked, asking it of the one who was truth incarnate, the Lord God. You know, Pilate, for him, truth was perhaps relative, perhaps relative, as it seems the case for a growing many today, the relativity of truth in their minds. There's a book um, written by uh, Mortimer Adler, um, and on page 165 of his curious book entitled How to Read a Book, maybe you've heard of it, he shared this observation. He writes, the question, is it true? Is it true? That question can be asked of anything that we read. Is it applicable? It, it is applicable to every kind of writing, you know, mathematics, engineering, philosophy, of course, the Bible. Is it true? You know, no higher commendation, he writes, can be given any work of the human mind than to praise it for the measure of truth it has achieved. He goes on, by the same token, to criticize it adversely for its failure also in keeping truth. Yet, strangely enough, in recent years, he writes, for the first time in Western history, there is a dwindling concern with this criterion of excellence. Books win the plaudits of the critics and gain widespread popular attention almost to the extent that they flout or skirt the truth. The more outrageously they do so, the better. Adler and his co-author, they wrote this in 1940. In 1940, and some 80 plus years later, the seriousness of truth is even more, I would argue, even more ignored and undervalued. For today, even the truth as to what makes a boy a boy and a girl a girl is questioned at the highest levels of our government. As Christians, we have always been held to the highest standards of the truth. Not because we are inherently more honest or forthright than our unbelieving neighbor, but because of the Lord that we serve, the Lord that we follow and 
to whom it is we belong and abide in. You know, who it is that we should be reflecting. Because the Lord, that's why. Now we need to be the people of the truth. We must be. That should not be doubted by anyone. As opposed to being driven by lies and deception, which is a rather dominant characteristic of our great enemy, the devil. We need to be the people, frankly, that the lost and the dying in the world can come to for the truth. We need to be those people, even when they're reluctant to do so. So how can people know this about us, that we are people of the truth? How can we expect our neighbor to listen to us, tell him about his condemning sin and Jesus' glorious good news if our own truthfulness is questioned because of the way we speak or live? Your neighbor sees more than you realize. How can we, as a church, bring glory to our Lord if we can't even expect to be believed by one another because of some harmful way about us? In our passage today, James addresses this critical issue of truthfulness amongst the ranks of the Christians in the dispersion, his audience. The church, it seems, had gotten into the nasty habit of doing the same things around their surrounding culture. So turn, if you haven't already, in your Bible to our passage, James 5, verse 12. Follow me as I read. The apostle writes, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but... Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James instructed his readers to not seek to deceive or manipulate. In this text here, to not do this with false oaths, but to let their words be believed based upon the character of truthfulness. And in doing so, it would escape guilt and judgment. That's what our text is saying, very plainly. Well, beloved, today we must heed the apostles' instruction here to not swear by a false oath, but to rather be a people whose words are believed at face value based on possessing a character of truthfulness. And in doing so, escaping guilt and judgment. So what can, we, what can we do to establish ourselves as harbingers of genuine, sincere, and pure truth? What can we do? Well, James was very courteous here. He gave us a very simple outline to follow. He gives a prohibition, an instruction, and provides a reason for us to follow. So let's jump right into it. Let's look at his prohibition. Well, he, he begins this transitory verse, and it is a transitory verse. Doesn't it can just seem to just stand out? You know, James does that. 
sometimes. It seems like, all right, he's just, this, how's the context here? Well, this is a transitory verse. And he writes, by, or, but above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. First part here in verse 12. Our first step, I believe, in understanding what he is telling his readers is to ascertain what he means by but above all. I mean, he has covered already quite a bit of stuff already in, in just even chapter 5 to be saying but above all. Well, first, just in this chapter, what has he done? He's vehemently calls out God's judgment upon the right unrighteous rich. Those unrighteous rich for their cruelty, their lies and deception. For example, their deception of the common laborer, cheating them out of their wages. And then in this chapter, in verse 7, he, James softens up a little bit. And he wishes to gently encourage his brothers in faith to wait on the Lord and to not turn on each other in the process. But now, come verse 12, he begins by writing, but above all. In other words, of greatest importance, they must not swear by heaven, earth, or by any other oath. Is that really of a greater importance than to learn the patient endurance of waiting upon the Lord, you know, waiting upon him for his compassion and mercy or, or his, his timely judgment of the rich in their case, in this immediate case of those who are oppressing them? You know, what is so important about them not swearing in this way, you know, by, by heaven or by earth or etc.? To answer this, I want to take a moment here and consider what James means by swearing. Well, first, he's not talking about the use of profanity. He's not talking about the use of cuss words, okay? He's talking about the making of and the using of oaths, to swear an oath. But is he talking about all oaths? Fair question. And is there such a thing as a good oath and a bad oath? I think pretty quickly we can easily see from James that in our verse here that there are certainly bad and unlawful oaths. Our church's confession, and I know this is going to be a repeat for some of you, but I'll try to be brief. In the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, in chapter 23, it talks about oaths, vows. It says, A lawful oath is an element of religious worship in which a person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what is sworn and to judge the one swearing according to the truth or falsity of it. So then, this would be an example of a lawful or a good, acceptable oath. Okay? The confession goes on to say, people should swear by the name of God alone, 
and only with the utmost holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear an empty or ill-advised oath by that glorious and awe-inspiring name, or to swear at all by anything else, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet, he continues, yet in weighty and significant matters, an oath is authorized by the word of God to confirm truth and end all conflict. So a lawful oath should be taken when it is required by legitimate authority in such circumstances. So, swearing by anything other than the name of God alone would be determined as an unlawful or a bad oath, as our confession puts it. It should be considered sinful and abhorred. So, far, so far then, as our confession has stated, oaths to help establish truth, to end all conflict, to establish truth, such as when giving testimony in a court case before a judge and jury, is an example of a lawful oath. There may be even appropriate times to swear an oath to establish truth in other circumstances. Again, when weighty and significant matters call for it. You can imagine what those might be. But, and this is a big but, to swear by the name of God in a rash and a glib or vain, careless manner is sinful. Just as sinful as swearing by any other than the name of God is sinful. Yet, I'm almost done here with our confession. I believe it's in the third paragraph of chapter 23, this confession of ours, better stresses the point that James is getting at. It reads, Whoever takes an oath authorized by the word of God should consider with due gravity the seriousness of such a weighty act and to affirm nothing in it except what one knows to be true. No half-truths. Half-truth is a full lie. I didn't come up with that. I can't remember where that was. It goes on, for the Lord is provoked by ill-advised false and empty oaths. The Lord is provoked, it says, and because of them this land mourns. There's no doubt, even in courtrooms, the swearing upon a Bible, in so many cases, is done carelessly. No fear for the name of God. And the land mourns. In verse 12, James is he's basically reiterating what his elder brother Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. If you'd like, I invite you to turn your Bibles there. Matthew 5. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head. 
for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So what do we have here? Both Jesus and James prohibit swearing by heaven or by earth. Jesus actually gives the reason. He says, because heaven is the throne of God and earth is his footstool. Both jurisdictions are under the rule of Almighty God. So in all cases, in all ways, we must defer to his high and holy name. So then it seems that as though both Jesus reading these texts, Jesus and James appear to be clearly prohibiting any swearing, any swearing at all. I mean, Jesus actually said, do not take an oath at all, didn't he? Where then do we get the idea, or our confession, where does it get the idea that Jesus and James is not prohibiting absolutely all occasions of swearing an oath? This is important to understand. There have been groups in in church history that have been very divided on this. Not Reformed churches, but in church history itself, like the Anabaptists. Well, to answer this question, where do we get this idea? A good line of reasoning, friends, a good line of reasoning begins with the third commandment. Exodus 20, verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Friends, this commandment is saying far more than condemning the use of God's name as some cuss word or to curse someone like, may God destroy you or something like that. It's far more than that. But I want you to notice how the commandment does not say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God and just end it there. But says to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It is the taking of God's name in vain that is prohibited, both by James and Jesus, which would be sinful and therefore abhorred. But conversely, this would also suggest that there is a right and good reason to take the name of the Lord. Now, if you recall what I read about just a moment ago, that the first paragraph in chapter 23 of our confession, it says that a lawful oath is an element of, of religious worship. We're reformed. We want to be reformed about issues of worship, right? Well, this does not mean an element of public worship per se, but more of an element of one's more personal worship. You know, an oath that lawfully takes the name of the Lord is an act of worship because it acknowledges that God alone can attest to the truth of the matter. Because only he, only he can see into the heart of man. It is a prayer, in fact. It invokes the name of God to bear witness to the truth that's being declared or or promised. You see that? 
As one commentator noted, whether one realizes it or not, it is a confession of God as the righteous and almighty one who will visit his terrible wrath upon all those who are brazen enough to stand in his presence with a lie upon their lips. Taking the name of the Lord lawfully, like in, in an oath, to confirm a truth that only he possesses in omniscience. This reveres, this honors his good name. Beloved, God is profoundly jealous, protective of his name. Thus we have the commandment in the moral law. The third commandment is an excellent argument, perhaps the best argument, for a lawful oath. But there are other instances I could name in Scripture where God himself swears by his name. In fact, it was read in our um, call to worship this morning in Genesis chapter 22, where God himself swears by his name. And there are several times where Paul swears by the name of the Lord to confirm the truthfulness of his claims. We have examples. James's prohibition against swearing is in alignment with, in fact, his earlier admonishments against sins of the tongue. And so, we've talked about this, so easy it can be sometimes to fall into the sins of the tongue. And so easily do people say, I, I swear to God. Or, oh my God. That's an oath, friends. Not realizing the fearful and awesome name that they are invoking. Not realizing that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Friends, ignorance is no excuse. You cannot do that before him. We must, believers, church, we must know better. We must. Likely you've sworn in some way, not thinking anything of it. <clears throat> That's a careless act. This is a violation of the third commandment. We must let our yes be yes and our no be no. Which brings me to the next point in our outline here that James gives Instruction. After James's statement prohibiting the unlawful swearing, he instructs the church to very simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. There is no need, beloved, to qualify your promises or prove your statements are true if you are a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is characterized by being truthful. No need. Now, I believe what James is aiming for in his instruction really is a purity in truthfulness. Let me explain. You know, I've said this at the beginning of this series that the overriding theme in, in James's letter is a wisdom being lived out in the community. He has told his readers that the wisdom from above, from God, is first what? 
pure. It is first pure. He has also told his readers that a worthy and true religion is one that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, you know, caring for those in great need, such as, and he tells us in Scripture, as the orphans and widows, caring for them, uh, keeping oneself unstained from the world, is his command. James tells his readers that this would be a pure religion. Purity in a believer is a, it's best captured in an undivided heart. It emanates out from that heart of that person. A pure heart is a heart that's singular toward God. It's not defiled by compromise, by selfishness or jealous ambition. It's not trying to serve two masters. When a person bends the truth or presents himself in a way that is meant to deceive somebody, that comes from a defiled heart, a heart divided by selfish interests. It's not pure. It's tainted, you see? James's instruction in speaking the truth, it follows his theme on the sins of the tongue. Our tongues can condemn us so easily, staining the whole body, James says. He said, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. You know, using the name of God to curse someone. Like, may God, again, hurt you. Or various examples. James writes, brothers, this ought not to be so. This ought not to be so. Not among us. A lying tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. It is fitting for a fool and profuse, profuse lying, a boy or a girl characterized as one who lies and is untruthful. If this is a persistent characterization of that boy or girl, he or she will be labeled a liar. And who, tell me, is the father of lies? The point is that we must not forget, beloved, the the serious nature of what James is dealing with here. A loose tongue characterized by, by untruthfulness has serious consequences. And especially when it includes smearing his name. God will not hold him guiltless. There must be a reckoning. Matthew 23 Jesus delivered seven woes. If you'd like, turn there, Matthew 23, starting in verse 16. In this little passage here in Matthew 23, Jesus delivers seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And it's in his third woe he meant where he admonished them for their, their low view of not only truth but of God himself. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. 
For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The scribes and Pharisees, what were they doing? They, were, think, they were thought they were clever. They were cleverly trying to skirt around telling the truth by avoiding the direct use of God's name in their swearing. It, clearly, swearing had gotten way out of control. This is and was a, an act of deception. There is actually a school teaching among the Pharisees that taught when oaths were binding and when they were not binding. They actually did that. It was as author and pastor Kent Hughes described it, and I like this, a moral schizophrenia where one would say, I am not really lying, but I'm also not telling the truth. (laughs) I'm not really lying, but I'm not telling the truth. What is that? Moral schizophrenia. Well, in doing this, what were they doing? They were exalting these things, you know, the temple, the altar, gold, some aspect of creation they were exalting. Exalting to the level of God. equating them with the name of God. And regarding this, as one early church father put it, Cyril of Alexandria, he said, very simply, we must not give the creation more value than it has by deifying it. Making it into a God somehow. And that's just what one does when he swears by anything but the name of God. Apparently, the apostle had learned of people in the church who had, had felt that they needed to resort unwitting, unwittingly to unlawful oaths, unlawful swearing, to prove that what they were saying was true. James knew about it. They had let this bad habit come back into their lives, into the church. Why would they feel the need to do that? Why would they think they need to do that except unless they had a reputation for not staying true to their word? Or maybe they were wanting to to deceive and manipulate. God had already dealt with the first century church in a remarkable way in regard to the seriousness of lying and the story of Ananias and Sapphira, didn't he? Uh, That met with sudden death after Peter confronted them with having attempted to deceive uh, the Christian community. Was James witnessing a similar form of deception among the believers that he was addressing? I, I've had friends in the past where our, our friendship was never able to grow 
because of their persistent need to embellish stories about themselves. Doesn't that get old quick? And I'm pretty sure there were times in my past where I came across as an embellished storyteller. The sad thing, the embarrassing thing is that people rarely forget this about others. What we are experiencing in our church today, you know, what, what is it that we're witnessing in our church today? No doubt there remains an element of, of sinfulness in the unlawful use of oaths in the church today. But I believe what we see today more and more in regards to the truth is a reckless abandonment of the truth in general. You know, more and more of what it is that is destroying churches isn't some form of easy believism, even though that still exists. But it's more foundational. Distortions of what man is. The nature of who, the nature and character of God. Or the subtle push for a Christless salvation. And nobody has to teach us how to lie. Kent Hughes calls this lying a congenital disease. We're born with it. No one needs to teach us that. Now, Paul tells us that we were once characterized by lies, but not so more anymore. Not so anymore, if you are truly in Christ. But, and again, a big but here, James is concerned that what still plagues these early Christians is finding its way back into the church, you know, threatening to ruin its testimony which smears God's name. We have a similar crisis today, church. You know, seeing what our society has become and is becoming, you know, relativizing truth by statements like what is true for you is not necessarily the same for me, or my opinion is just as good as yours. Really? I mean, what's the purpose for an opinion anyways? This seems to be an acceptable answer in our society today, doesn't it? I think that's partly what just is frustrating. Society has devalued truth to whatever seems right in its own eyes. Down to the level of the individual. Beloved, we must recognize this threat. This threat and its subtleness to affect each and every one of us. You know, change, change begins with what we know and believe about God. God is the Word of God, who is a God of truth. We cannot let our words become stained with a drop of untruthfulness. Our yes and no must never be mistaken for anything else. Society has devalued the veracity of words, wanting to make them mean different things whenever it suits. It's so 
difficult to have a debate with people that do that. Brothers, we must stand opposite this world by each of us doing whatever possible to ensure that we are characterized by a purity in our truthfulness, an undivided heart about it, regardless of what it costs us in our jobs and in our families. (coughs) But, again, another but, lots of buts in this. Let that passion for truth that you have Let that passion for truth, let it be tempered by a gentle and forgiving spirit. Let's not forget to be winsome when we can be. You know, mercy is more virtuous than honesty. And let us not forget that when it comes to bending the truth, we are all affected. We are all affected. We must remain humble about this. You know, one great writer and preacher, he had the guts to admit the following. Quote, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many petty lies. For example, things that mean one thing to myself, though another to other people. And I know this, but I don't think lightly of it. Where I am more often wrong is in tacitly pretending I hear things which I do not, especially jokes and good stories, the point of which I always miss, but seeking to laugh along with everyone else. I will laugh as well for the sake of not looking a fool. My respect for the world's opinion is my greatest stumbling block, I fear. Some honest words. A danger here is that embellishment or hiding the truth from people in some small way falls into the the category of those respectable sins that we've often talked about. We can all be guilty of them one time or another. So we'll dismiss them. Because of the pervasiveness of untruthfulness, we must be reminded of why it must be avoided, which brings us to the last point in the outline here, reason. At the end of verse 12, James provides the reason why we must be radical in our approach to truth. Radical. Saying, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James get this, he gets this from the latter part of the third commandment that says, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. <clears throat> Truly, we do not take that threat seriously enough. We simply do not think God will instantly kill us for deceiving the church as he did Ananias and Sapphira. We take God's patience and his mercy for granted. Yes, the times of the Acts of the Apostles was a special defining time for the church and the Holy Spirit had special purposes to serve in that unique period of time. But regardless of that, we we just don't fear the Lord as we should. 
for us it often becomes a matter of time. Enough time going by that weakens our faith or our boldness in taking up our, our daily cross. We can forget things. We understand that as Christians, Christ has borne the punishment of such apathy. But that doesn't mean that there's still not consequences to such sin. One of a Christian's greatest sins is to take advantage of the grace and mercy of God, to presume upon His grace. You know, perhaps it is for many professing believers that they have gotten so accustomed to deceiving others that they have deceived themselves into thinking they are a Christian. This, my friend, would be a form of condemnation. As we've been learning in Sunday school, God often uses one's sin to judge him. For example, the deceiver becoming deceived by his own lies. Friends, that very well could be the present case of someone even in this auditorium. The condemnation promised by God for such persistent sin could be that veil of deception that a person is presently living under. A Christian who gives into lies is an example of the double-minded man that James spoke of earlier in his letter. A man who is unstable in all his ways. And although God has mercy on his children in meeting needs and continues to provide means of sanctification, that man, says James, that man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. God's memory is not weakened by time. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. If I could insert every careless oath or swearing. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I'll close here now. Wrap it up. James has given us a prohibition. He's given us instruction. He's given us a reason for maintaining a purity in our truthfulness. And with a purity that is without compromise or division within our hearts. Regarding a prohibition, our attempts to convey truth must not betray our confession of the Lord as being sovereign over all and the only one worthy of worship. We do that by elevating things that they shouldn't be. Now this, it's, it's evident in swearing by anything other than the name of God or swearing by the name of God in a rash or careless way. We're prohibited from that. Regarding instruction, our character should dispel all doubt that we speak only the truth. If you become a person who is known to be trustworthy, then there is no need to swear. 
James's instruction to let your yes be yes and your no be no is a command to let a radical approach to truth frame your life. And regarding reason, our aim at reflecting Christ's purity and truth, that will spare us from a state of guilt and condemnation, guilt and judgment. To abide in Christ is to abide in the truth. To be outside of Christ is to suffer a state of condemnation in some way. It could even bear a painful eternal consequence, friends. Beloved, as a faithful old saint once put it, when our sins rise up against us, there is yet one great consolation. That in spite of our unfaithfulness, God never changes. He never changes. He remains the faithful covenant God. Merciful and gracious. A steadfast love that endures forever. He's slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. Forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. No matter, beloved, no matter how often you have sworn falsely or rashly, all his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Let us then throw ourselves upon the never-failing mercy of such an almighty, unchanging God. Then we shall experience the truth of the promise that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And moreover, let us also answer the love of the Lord with a true devotion, a pure one, undivided one. Let us renew our covenant with him and pledge ourselves to serve the God of truth with a wholehearted dedication. 